Hello, welcome to the book club. I'm Sarah Charmian, and I will be hosting, teaching, I haven't yet decided exactly. A traditional book club might have someone leading it, but is a chance for everyone to speak together to talk about things as well, um, to see what they thought about a book. And of course, this is a bit different. I've been using book club because of a comment a student left last semester about my American literature course. They said that it, quote, never felt like a class, but more like a book club. You know, I've been thinking about that because I don't think that this is quite as formal as a continuing ed class or anything like this. And I'm actually not necessarily going to be teaching you anything. I'm not going to tell you why these books are important. Um... I'm not going to teach you why you should care. I'm not going to teach you anything so much as present a handful of texts that I find interesting, compelling, thought-provoking. So let's dive into our first cycle. This book cycle is more or less chronologically structured over a hundred years of American history. I'm starting with American literature because that's one of my areas of expertise, but it's what really got me interested in English. American literature is what got me fascinated in studying the written word, and it's what really helped me to feel like I could understand what it meant to be an American. Today's what I like to call syllabus day, um, the first day of any normal class where we surprise go over the syllabus. Also, I usually let you go 15 minutes early. We're going to do a few things. Um, one, the syllabus that I have posted here is a pretty straightforward, basic thing. You'll see for this month, we're just looking at background. Um, for the month of April, I have the end of the frontier in a new America. You didn't have to read anything. It's the first day. Um, instead, I'm going to give you a few things that I find useful. I'm going to give you some background for next month. Um, by May 13th, you will have read My Antonia by Willa Cather. For June, it's Nella Larson's Passing. July is unofficially um, Catherine Ann Porter Month. By unofficially, I mean um, I just really like Catherine Ann Porter. So we are reading two of her novellas, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, and The Leaning Tower. August 12th, I'm just calling our Southerners for now. Uh, that's a shorthand to let you know we'll be talking about some Southern writers. Uh, these will be short stories. You can count on Flannery O'Connor, um, but there's also going to be Eudora Welty, Carson McCullers, maybe even a little Truman Capote. Also expect this to have a longer list of suggested extra readings. Like any syllabus, though, all things are subject to change. For September 9th, we'll be reading Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. October is Paradise by Toni Morrison. November, an essay by David Foster Wallace called The View from Mrs. Thompson's. I'm pairing this also with the idea of Confederate memory. We'll be thinking about how we make meaning with symbols. And for December, Jessamine Ward's Sing Unburied Sing. You'll notice that this more or less follows a chronological order. My Antonia by Willa Cather opens up in the modernist period with a publication date of 1918, although it takes place at the end of the 19th century more or less. Nella Larson's Passing is 1929. 
Pale Horse, Pale Rider, while taking place in 1918, is written in the 1930s, and The Leaning Tower is similarly written in the 1930s, though it takes place um, earlier in the 1930s than it is published. Um, our Southerners, uh, this will be the beginning of the post-war period, as in post the Second World War. And our writers will be primarily writing in the late 40s through the mid 50s and some into the early 60s. Sylvia Plass, The Bell Jar, is written in the late 50s but not published until 1963 after her death. Paradise by Toni Morrison is published in 1998 but covers multiple generations in a single town um, and spends a fair amount of time in the 1970s. The View from Mrs. Thompson is a reflection of 9-11 and is published just a few years after that event. Sing Unburied Sing is going to end us um, by looking back at almost the entire time period in which we are exploring, um, published in 2017. For every episode, I'll not only be discussing the book itself, but providing a visual guide to help you. This isn't necessarily going to be a transcript of anything that I'm saying, but will instead be a handful of big questions. If you were one of my students, um, you'd know that I like to provide big questions for you to keep in mind as you're reading or to keep in mind as you reflect. Big questions that I usually sprinkle in at the end of every class before letting you loose on a new text. At the bottom of the written portion of this particular episode, you'll see a couple of big questions to consider before you read My Antonia. For the May episode, the written portion of the podcast will have a few more specific questions for you to keep in mind and for you to reflect on, as well as a repost of the big questions I ask you to consider. In addition to the big questions, the more specific questions and other ideas, the written portion will provide some extra reading links and other sources that you might find interesting. Some will have more than others. That's just kind of how this goes. For the months of August and November, expect to have a completed syllabus about a month or two before our reading begins. Now, to provide some background on this cycle. Today is called The End of the Frontier and a New America. I realize, actually, as I'm looking at this, um, it's become accidentally a course that's mostly women writers. This is not on purpose. Um, it's not meant to be a statement. I just, I think, it just so happens that a lot of non-canonical writers, I guess, were women. And while there are plenty of great canonical works that we can talk about, I hope I can lead you to either books that have slipped through the cracks in the past, or as the case with something like The Bell Jar, a new way to think about a formerly radical text. It just so happens that these are books that I love, and hopefully you will enjoy them too. As I mentioned, our first book for our main discussion was published in 1918, but is set at the end of the 19th century. So, while the turn of the century saw a number of changes to American life, the two that'll most affect us in our reading is the failure of Reconstruction in the 1870s. We will see repercussions of that, particularly in books that have to do with the South and with race, and I'll talk about this more in Confederate Memory in November, and what is called the End of the Frontier. We're going to focus on that last bit right now. The End of the Frontier. So, in 1893... Frederick Jackson Turner declared the frontier closed. Now, there are a few of us that debate what it means for the frontier to be closed, and in fact, the state of Florida has often been called a frontier even after that official closure. But that's because we tend to think of the frontier as Western movement rather than necessarily southward movement. So what is the importance of the West for America? 
what is the importance of the ability to go west? I'm going to turn to Thomas Jefferson on this one, which is simply to say that Thomas Jefferson, like a number of other thinkers of his time, believed that Europe was becoming too crowded. The part of the problems, the ills, the societal ills that plagued Europe were a natural outgrowth of nations that had outgrown their space. And if you went across the water and moved to America, you could always keep moving. If something got too crowded, you could follow Daniel Boone to Kentucky. This is where we get some of our mythologies about independence and the nobility of the frontiersmen. Thomas Jefferson sort of saw America as being able to do what Europe could not do, because any time we got too crowded, we could simply spread out further. That said, Jefferson foresaw that eventually we were gonna run out of land. So a lot of his hope for America, that we would be able to hold to a more pastoral tradition, something that held a greater balance between man and nature, that allowed us fresh air and to create a truly new society free of the perceived ills of Europe, was doomed from the beginning. Even as he wrote with great excitement about our fledgling nation, it seems, Jefferson saw that what defined us as special would not be possible for later generations of Americans. I sometimes joke that America was a nation founded on short-sightedness, a sort of forewarning of our modern tendency to pick legislature with short-term fixes rather than long-term solutions. To better understand the idea of the frontier and how this works, I'm going to be looking at a few passages from a text called Virgin Land. This was written by um, Henry Nash Smith and published in 1950. I first came across it while taking an American Studies course during my time at Barnard. I was absolutely entranced by it. I realized that this is not a book that everyone should read. Um, they should. No one should feel that they need to. Um, a lot of the chapters go on and on in minute detail about trends in Western adventure writing and what it means to American literary history. Things that are fascinating to me, but probably not interesting to just about anyone else. Um, however, this study sort of um, of how we write about ourselves and how we wrote ourselves into existence, I find it really helpful for trying to get a hold of what it means to be American. You may find that I come back to virgin land throughout this cycle, particularly as we talk about the South and the problems of agriculture in America. Um, most of the texts that we're reading take place in the 20th century, or at the very least are published in it. So what was America before this, before our golden age, our age of world domination? In Henry Nash Smith's prologue, he writes about 18th century origins. What is an American, asks St. Jean de Crevecoeur before the revolution, and the question has been repeated by every generation from his time to ours. Poets and novelists, historians and statesmen have undertaken to understand it, have undertaken to answer it, but the varying national self-consciousnesses that they have tried to capture always escapes final statement. I like this, the varying national self-consciousness they have tried to capture always escapes final statement. We're very bad at defining who we are for a while. Um, I mean, we still are. 
we use the frontier. We use the ability to go west and um, our ability to take, to, to conquer is sort of what made, made an American. Men of Thomas Jefferson's day emphasized freedom and republicanism as the defining characteristics of American society. The definitions of later thinkers stress the cosmopolitan blending of a hundred peoples into one, or mechanical ingenuity, or devotion to business enterprise. These are things that we sometimes refer to as the melting pot or the American dream. But one of the most persistent generalizations concerning American life and character is the notion that our society has been shaped by the pull of a vacant continent, drawing population westward through the passes of the Alleghenies, across the Mississippi Valley, over the high plains and mountains of the far west to the Pacific coast. Although Turner asserted that the westward movement was about to come to an end with what he believed to be the closing of the frontier of free land in the West, a whole generation of historians took over his hypothesis and rewrote American history in terms of it. Brilliant and persuasive as Turner was, his contention that the frontier and the West had dominated American development could hardly have attained such universal acceptance if it had not found an echo in ideas and attitudes already current. Whatever the merits of the Turner thesis, the doctrine that the United States is a continental nation, rather than a member with Europe of an Atlantic community, has had a formative influence on the American mind and deserves historical treatment in its own right. Part of us trying to define ourselves was to recognize that we were coming from Europe, but somehow wanting to be apart from Europe. And the way that we could do this was to take over our continent and say that we were our own thing, that we were not just this outgrowth of Europe, that we were not too similar to Europe, that we could somehow divide ourselves, use not only the ocean to divide us, but to spread out and take over an entire continent. Something else for us to consider here um, is that Smith is going to tell us a little bit about how Americans have dealt with nature and how we viewed it and how we viewed nature has changed, um, particularly in the 20th century. So in this cycle, we're not reading um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. We're not going to be reading Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's River of Grass about the Everglades. But keep in mind that our idea of the way to interact with nature has changed significantly in the last hundred years. Um, and was almost sort of the way that we dealt with nature, the way that we dealt with nature during the colonial period may even feel foreign to us now. So we want to consider what all of this means as we try to consider our relationship to the land on which we live. How are we tied to the land in which we live as part of our nationhood? How is our nation tied to the land on which we have settled? In the 17th century, early colonists often wrote of the forests and the unsettled land as the devil's den. There's a quote from um, a colonist, Michael Wigglesworth, in 1662, um, describing it as a waste and howling wilderness where none inhabited but hellish fiends and brutish men that devils worshipped. Obviously, this is a description of indigenous people. But there was also just this fear that nature was sort of inherently evil. 
There's this idea that nature without man's control and interference was a den of evil. So thick forest where you can't see things, um, underbrush, swamps, all of these are associated with the idea that it's not just, you know, small animals and things that can lurk there. It's the devil. The devil can lurk there anywhere that the sunshine cannot get to. This is that the sunshine cannot clean and disinfect is a space for the devil to be. So when we moved west to conquer land, we weren't just spreading out. We were doing God's work. We were ridding the land of the devil or so it seemed under the theological structures that really heavily influenced the first pioneers in the Northeast. For a while, we stayed close to the coast because that was just easier. We knew how to transport commodities as colonists uh, back to England from the coast. So Americans with a desire to move are not going to be encouraged to move to the interior. Rather, they'll be directed northward um, to Canada, to Nova Scotia, or southward to Georgia, or even Florida, which, surprise, the state of Florida, if you have read some of my writing on Florida, you will know was actually under English control at the time of the American Revolution. Anyway, returning to Henry Nash Smith. He writes that there was a British or a European market for furs, for tobacco, for naval stores, turpentine, pitch, timber suitable for shipbuilding, and so on, but it seemed unlikely that farmers in the Ohio Valley would be able to produce any commodities worth transporting to a transatlantic market. But the Great American West kind of still pulls us. The land is rich, as we end up discovering. Um, but there's just something about it. There's just this great physical fact of it. It's unknown. It just has this huge, it just has this magnitude. It has this magnetism, even. And in 1720, we have Bishop Berkeley write that westward the course of empire takes its way. Essentially, there's this idea that the English are realizing that each empire is succeeded by another. As Nash writes, the empire of Greece had given way to that of Rome. Rome had yielded preeminence to northern Europe. The empires of France and Spain had waned as Britain had waxed in power. Was America fated to be the next inheritor of universal sway? And some Americans naturally took these ideas more seriously than, than the English did. Um, anyway, by the end of the 18th century, we have people like Thomas Jefferson essentially telling us that the continent is going to be peopled from the, quote, original nest of the Atlantic settlements. The inhabited parts of the United States, he noted in 1786, had already attained a density of 10 persons to the square mile, and wherever we reach that the inhabitants become uneasy, as too much compressed, and go off in a great numbers to search for vacant country. Anytime we're getting over that 10 persons per square mile density, we just push a little further out, and then we don't have to worry about it. At the rate of inhabitants, he estimated that all the territory east of the Mississippi would be occupied within 40 years. And then apparently they would go beyond the river and then we would just pour into South America because clearly that is empty and no one is there. And also who cares that the Spanish are also there? Um, and also that this is largely land that we don't own yet, but that's fine. Thomas Jefferson knows what he wants. <laughs> anyway, returning to Smith, he writes, even before the Treaty of Peace that officially marked the end of the revolution, Philip Furneaux had elaborated his vision of future glory in the West. 
The North American empire of the future, he wrote in 1782, would bring agriculture to the summit of perfection and make the nation's brothers by disseminating the riches of the new world throughout the earth. As in a hundred yet unwritten rhapsodies on the West, the physical fact of the continent dominates the scene. The American interior is presented as a new and enchanting region of inexpressible beauty and fertility. It's a big change, right, from just a little over a hundred years before where we're terrified of the forest because the devil's in them. All right, so now you have a little bit of a history of this, which is at first we moved along the coast, but then we felt we had to move west, and there were two reasons. One was manifest destiny. It was our right because America needed to become the next empire. But the other was a fear that should we become too crowded, then there would no longer be anything that separated us from Europe. There's also this idea that if we could have more space to spread out on, we would remain morally pure in some way. It wasn't so much that we would be close to nature as that we would we would be able to control it in the correct way, right? Um, but we would also still be able to retain our freedom, still be able to swing our arms without the worry of hitting our neighbors' noses. But interestingly, the title of Henry Nash Smith's book is Virgin Land. Apart from the many problems that come into this when we consider that, well, colonizing Europeans were not the first humans to live here, is the idea is that this is land as yet unspoiled that needs to be taken. There is violence involved in this, involved in this part of history. There's also something very odd about it. The fact that if you build yourself as a country that is unique because of its ability to just keep expanding, to keep eating things up, that's pretty unsustainable. Either you're going to have to be an empire over the earth, or you'll have to change who you are. It's for you to decide where we've ended up. I would say probably somewhere in between. Um, we're not quite sure who we are. We're a bit of an empire, but we don't necessarily want to say it. So we start the cycle, the cycle of this book club, by considering the fact that America no longer knows who she is, no longer knows who she is at the beginning of the 20th century, and maybe no longer knows who she is right now. At least we've had a little bit more time to think, right? By the beginning of the 20th century, we are a nation that has run out of space. We are a nation that has broken in half and attempted to reform, but reconstruction fails. This is where we're starting from. Are we the same nation in 1900 that we were at the end of the revolution? I mean, of course, we've changed some and time has changed a lot, but are we still defined by the same things? Do we know what we were defined by then? It's a problem that has plagued America. We're not homogenous. We're not native. What are we? What makes our country what we are? We'll be exploring that through a number of these books. I'd, I mentioned earlier that I'd accidentally picked almost entirely women. And I think I realized one of the reasons that that happened is I'm trying to let us explore what it means to be American and what it means to live in America, not necessarily from the point of view of those who are winners, those with the most power. I want us to explore what it means to be American from those who rarely get to define it. Any time that we talk about who is writing, whose history is remembered, who controls the narrative, we're always talking about 
power. I want each of you to consider what is your American narrative? What is your narrative of your family in America? What is your story of you and America? What does it mean for you to be an American? How do you define your relationship to your country? What does patriotism look like? What does nationalism look like? I'm going to end with a few lines from Walt Whitman. He's a, he's a crazy old guy. Uh, it's funny. Growing up, I didn't much care for Whitman. I only ever heard Captain, oh, Captain, my captain. Um, now I kind of love him. I think he's actually one of my favorite parts of the 19th century. And part of that is because he's, he's so weird. He's so wonderfully, wonderfully strange. Um, a lot of his writing that isn't Civil War poetry is, frankly, a better example of how to be transcendental than the transcendentalists um, would have appreciated. He and Henry David Thoreau didn't actually get on all that well. Um, they really deeply disliked each other. And I like to believe that's because as much as transcendentalism seemed to be a belief in the divinity of all things in nature and man as of nature rather than apart from nature, which is a pretty significant change in how we dealt with land and dealt with what it means to be American. Henry David Thoreau seemed pretty afraid of his own body. And Emerson also seemed to be a little bit afraid of his own body as well. Maybe also Henry David Thoreau's body. Anyway, a little too much of that Boston Brahmin Calvinism to like fully transcend. Whitman, however, seemed very in touch with himself. You know, he writes... Um, I sing the body electric of how he is everything and everything is him. And we know now that he was almost certainly at the very least bisexual, if not just gay. He's definitely a queer man in all senses of the word. He apparently kept a notebook um, of men that he found interesting that he would write about. He would sort of keep track of someone that he thought was handsome or just caught his eye. Um, he was a man that was also working class. Uh, he came from New York. He was not born into a good family like Emerson and Thoreau were. In a lot of ways, we could consider him to be really American, right? We we love a good bootstrap story. Um, I'm going to have a list of a few poems that I love by Whitman with links to them, but I just want to end with reading this poem, um, To the Garden, To the World. To the garden, the world, a new ascending, potent mates, daughters, sons, preluding, the love, the life of their bodies, meaning and being, curious here, behold my resurrection after slumber. The revolving cycles in their wide sweep having brought me again, amorous, mature, all beautiful to me, my limbs and the quivering fire that ever plays through them for reasons most wondrous. Existing I peer and penetrate still, content with the present, content with the past. By my side or back of me, Eve following, or in front, and I following her, just the same. If America was meant to be a new Eden, a new beginning, this really could be it. But in this new Eden, Eve is not made for Adam. Eve is not what brings about the downfall, but instead Whitman describes it as Eve is by his side or back of him or in front. As much as I've discussed, oh, the sad parts of American history, the sad things about our relationship to our land, the desire to just take, I want to end 
on this hopeful note with Whitman. This idea that maybe in the new America, we could have that equal space. What if in this new Eden, one is not made for the other? There is not the hierarchy of man, then woman, then animal. What if we really are all walking together occasionally, one leading the other, but switching? What if we do have the ability to have that equality and equal space for us to be content with the present and content with the past?